Hi, and thank you for listening to Dream 10X Radio, where we interview people attempting to live extraordinary lives. Our twofold purpose is to both direct and inspire people bold enough to do the same. Dream 10X. Face your fears. Hey, welcome to episode 20 of the Dream 10X Podcast. This is your boy JC. And Dr. C. How you doing this year? 2021. Woohoo! Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's January what, 4th? Yeah, 5th? January 4th. 2021. It's hard to believe. Any resolutions for this new year? Still working on it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, but one of the things I definitely want to continue doing is reading books. Mm-hmm. And um, if anybody's out there wondering why we started off interviewing people and then dropped it off and, and now just are reviewing books, well, um, I feel like I have a ton of books on my bookshelf that I'm not reading. And this podcast is now giving me an excuse to read some of the books that are on my bookshelf, get through them, and think about them. And. Um, try to apply some of the lessons learned from those books in what I do in my life, um, which is always striving to do something better and bigger and uh, feeding into our dreams, my dreams. So this week, I um, I actually finished reading The Snowball. About It's a book about Warren Buffett written by Alice Schrader. And uh, I think it came out in 2008 or 2009. And this thing was a monster. It's like 700 pages. And it took me a good while to get through this. And I'm still digesting it, trying to write up some notes to talk about for the podcast. But every time I thumb through it and think about something and have a question about something, I, I get sidetracked into something else. And there's just so, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a big T-bone steak from Nebraska, like a, from a <laughs> Nebraska steakhouse is what this book is. It's really good. And I learned a ton. And... I have an even more profound appreciation for Warren Buffett and who he is and what he was able to accomplish in his life and a greater appreciation for his family members and the characters involved and what his character is like. And I kind of um, associate with him a little bit because he's kind of a, he started off his life as kind of an introvert and a, a nerd and uh, that kind of appealed to me because I was kind of like that. Was? Until I turned into a stud that I am today. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but actually, I think I associate more with his dad. His dad's mm-hmm. name was Howard Buffett. And Howard started off as an insurance salesman and then became a stockbroker. Um and then he became, uh, he ran for Congress and, and, and made it into Congress, which may, uh, allowed him to bring the family to Washington, D.C. And I didn't know this, but Warren Buffett and his parents and his family lived in Washington, D.C. for a while. Oh, wow, really? Huh. Yeah, up in the D.C., Maryland area. And yeah. I think he, he actually went to Woodrow Wilson High School. Wow. Do you know where really that cool. is? I, I don't. It's, I've heard of it. Yeah. I hear, I, hear, I don't know, on WTOP or whatever. Yeah. It's up there somewhere. But so yeah, he he lived here for a while. Um, I don't think he liked it here very much, and always wanted to go back to Nebraska as much as possible. Um, understandably, I guess. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I used to live in Nebraska. It was amazing. You lived in Omaha. I lived in Omaha. Mm-hmm. What did you think about it? Loved it. The people are phenomenal. Uh, I love it because there's like no chain restaurants. It's all real restaurants, mom and pop places. Uh-huh. Um, it's a city, but it's got a small town feel. It's just a great place to live. And you can see that reading about Buffett's personality and mm-hmm. his family. And it's very Midwest, you know, uh, wholesomeness, I guess. I I don't want to read too much into that because maybe he's not really like that. But it just, it, the way people portray him, mm-hmm. he comes off like that. So I... I can kind of see that coming from Omaha. Yeah. Um, but he's definitely a very shrewd businessman. Howard Buffett, very conservative Republican. Uh, so I relate to that as well. Uh, married to a woman named Leela Buffett. And um, I, th- I found it interesting that there's a lot of mention of people's IQs in this book. Really? Yeah. Huh. That so, seems to be a theme through the book she's reading. Uh, I don't know about a theme in the books, but definitely a theme about success. Okay. 
and you know some people say iq is is related to success and other people say it's not real yeah interestingly enough i think there's some quotes in here from buffett's partner charlie munger who claims that iq has nothing to do with success that it's really perseverance and hard work and, mm. and that kind of thing that has the most to do with success so i i like buff i like i like uh munger's take on that a little bit Definitely. better as we hope uh anyway so Back to IQ and Leela Buffett, her sisters, um, they, they suffered from some mental health issues, interestingly enough. Um, and it mentions that, the book mentions that Leela had a sister who was considered the dullard having an IQ of 139. Wow. That's pretty high, That's isn't it? It's really high. 139? But it depends on the scale because there's different kinds of IQ scales. Yeah. But, uh, and, and then there's another mention in the book of... Um, Benjamin Graham's IQ being around a 200. Uh, I'm just saying, pointing out that it's interesting that IQs are mentioned in here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, you wouldn't have expected a, that. Yeah, well, who cares about IQs? But somebody cares about IQs. The person who wrote this book, maybe. Um, so yeah, Howard and Leela were Warren Buffett's parents. And um, so War Howard was an insurance salesman, stockbroker, uh, congressman. And um, Howard's dad, Warren's grandfather, Ernest, uh, owned a grocery store there in Omaha. And so just by looking at the family alone, you can tell right away that, okay, they've got some entrepreneurial, uh, business-minded um, people in the family. And uh, also, uh, Warren hung out at his dad's stock broker firm and his uncles worked there and he mentions how one uncle was very pessimistic and always thought the market was going to zero and the other the other uh, uncle was very optimistic and thought you know the sky's the limit and markets are going to go uh, up forever and so he was stuck in the middle of these two uncles which which is really really fascinating and and the reason i think this is really fascinating is because of the history, the backdrop of America and the world at the time in which he was born. So Buffett was born in 1930. And of course, the Great Depression just occurred a year before in 1929. And um, his, his dad got into, uh, started, moved out of becoming an insurance salesman into selling stocks right on the heel, right after the market crash. Wow, enough. that seems like a bad time to get in. Yeah, I think it was 1933 is when he, somewhere around there when he started uh, selling stocks. And uh, also at that time, I didn't know this, but Great Britain got off of the gold standard in 1931. Really? After the global financial meltdown started happening. Huh. And yeah. then in 1933, FDR took the United States off the gold standard. So you got these big financial world powers going off the gold standard at that time. And um, of course, Roosevelt also made it illegal for anybody to own gold and people had to turn over their gold to the federal government so the, the federal government could beef up their gold reserves. And that allowed them to start printing money to fund the New Deal and put people to, back to work and, and all that kind of thing to uh, you know, float, float the economy full of cash to help escape from the, the depression that was happening. So um, there's that. So uh, Buffett is born into this world where everybody around him is fighting to survive financially. At that time, his dad was like, oh, I, you know, the market's going down. I can't even, I'm not selling any stocks. Nobody wants to buy any stocks. Um, he even wanted to go work for his dad at the grocery store to make some money. And his dad said, no, I don't want you working here. Don't worry about it. I'll give you credit. You're not going to go hungry. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but then he eventually, you know, a year later, whatever, started uh, selling stocks again once the, the economy improved. But it's just interesting that this is the stage in which he is born. These are the people that he's born to. And Buffett even says that he won the ovarian lottery. <laughs> um, very smart parents. Uh, very trying times in which to start growing up and to see people living very uh, frugally. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, not only trying to... to 
to survive, but also trying to th- thrive in that type of environment. I think that that helps make stronger people. Um, and my grandmother talks talked about that. Both uh, one of my grand- grandmothers talked about that a lot. Um, the Great Depression and and how they tried to get by and. Mm-hmm. Life was just totally different then. We we can't even relate to what the Great Depression was like right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, for us, a Great Depression is when the market drops a thousand points or something like we're that. We're on oh, toilet yeah. paper during COVID. Oh, yeah, we're on <laughs> toilet paper. We have no idea yeah. what it, it it's really like in America today. So anyway, this is the backdrop of what she was born. Um, so he grows up uh, very business minded. He, he's getting it naturally from his family, and he likes to collect things. He collects, um, he likes to collect money, <laughs> basically, at a young age. And so that's one of his gifts, uh, and he's just like a money magnet. Um, uh, he, he, he starts um, uh, collecting baseball cards and um, just things of value that he can, he can turn in. And uh, he goes to a race, a race, not a race car, uh, a horse race track and discovers that people will often throw their tickets on the, on the floor, not realizing that they won a second or third place and and won some money. Really? And he he and a friend realize, oh, they can pick up, they can check out these tickets and and find money left over on the tickets, but he couldn't cash them in because he was too young. So he gave them to one of his family members who went and cashed in the tickets and they would frequently get money that way um that's smart he had a pinball business he started with a friend where they talked a barber into putting a pinball machine in the barber shop and they split the split the money with the barber and then they took that money and bought more pinball machines and kept growing that way and so he figured out a pattern early on of how to take his profits and reinvest them to make more profits Hmm. and so by age 14, um, he, had, he had amassed $1,000 already. And at, at that time, let's see, 14, so he, that was 1944-ish. Um, that's the equivalent of $14,786 today. That's incredible. 14 years old. And fa- he famously start, you know, started um, uh, with paper, paper routes. Yeah. And, and that's where he saved up a lot of his money doing that. And in fact, I think the money he was somehow making with that on, the, on his paper routes was more than a lot of people were making per year at the really? time. Yeah, and in professional jobs. Hmm. And so by age 15, he had saved um, $2,000, uh, which, which in today's dollars was about $27,914. <laughs> And he spent $1,200 to buy a 40-acre farm. At That's age, unique. At age 15. Huh. <laughs> what was the driver behind that? Uh, I forget what drove him to do that, but there was a farmer that uh, was already working the land, working the farm there, and he set up a, an arrangement with the farmer to split the profits. So he didn't have to do anything. He just bought the farm, and then the farmer worked the, provided the labor. Mm-hmm. And he made, he split the profits with the farmer. That's really smart. Yeah. Yeah. And then by age 20, I just, uh, the book is called Snowball. So they talk a little bit about how he started amassing his fortune early on. And I think it's really interesting. By age 20, um, using his entrepreneurial side hustles, he had saved $9,803, which is the equivalent to $106,753 Dang. today. And, um, that, and, and that was when he entered graduate school in 1950. So he went to the University, University of Pennsylvania, uh, Wharton, which is a famous business school. It's still very famous today. And when he graduated from there, he, he knew right away he, he wanted to be in business. And he was somehow, I, th- I think he had read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. And um, he, he was aware of... Graham and kind of some of his investing theories. He was he was already Buffett was already investing in stocks at a very young age. He had already had experience mm-hmm. investing in stocks. Of course, he got it from his family as well, so he, he knew about all a lot of the lingo there. Um, and uh, after graduating from 
uh, undergrad, he decided he wanted to go get a business, to, uh, a master's, and applied to Harvard, and Harvard rejected him. And uh, the deadlines were already passed for business school, but then he found out Benjamin Graham was teaching at um, Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. And so he went ahead and applied, even though the applications, application deadline had passed, he went ahead and applied and went and talked to him, um, Dotson, who was his partner, uh, and um, talked his way into going to school there. And they admitted him even after the application things were over, which I thought was interesting. He talked his way into Columbia. So he's got to be a good salesman, too. He's a good salesman. Uh, he had a lot of passion. Yeah. He had a lot of passion for what he wanted to study, and he knew he had an objective. Mm -hmm. He had a clear objective. And that was become a great businessman, a great investor. He, he, knew, he knew where he was going. At age and 20, that's, that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I pointed out, because yeah. how many 20-year-olds do you know who know what they want to do? <laughs> I sure as hell didn't. Oh, me neither. <laughs> so that's really key as yeah. well. Um, not to mention that from an early, early age, he had already had an affinity for, for saving money and, and business and talking, talking about businesses and the value of businesses and all that. So, um, yeah, it, it, early on, it's really clear to see his his career arc and his trajectory trajectory and and kind of well yeah it makes sense what he did but it's still amazing even at these these young ages how much money he was willing he was able to to amass and, and he had the mindset of hey my dollar today could be worth ten more ten dollars in, in some point early in the future mm -hmm. and so the more dollars I have today and can invest the more it's going to be worth in the future the power of compounding interest. And he had that mindset at a very young age, which is it's amazing. I still don't have that mindset. It's still, I still have to like, think about that. How am, I, how am I multiplying my dollars today? What am I doing to multiply my dollars? It's very difficult. It's, very, it's difficult to me. Yeah, to me too. Oh, that's why I'm reading these books. How, how, do, how do people have that mindset to multiply their dollars? Yeah. And what instruments do they use to multiply their dollars? That seems like, at least um, for most of us, it's by trying to get another job. Yeah. And so for me, like yeah. I applied to a couple of jobs that were, you know, significant pay increases mm. in order to amass my wealth. But I don't think that's the, necessarily the right option. And people don't think about this from a different perspective and what they can do on a daily basis to increase their wealth. Yeah. No, so, you're not going to get you're not going to get rich from a job. Yeah, exactly. you're going to get income. And the trick is, how do you take that income and multiply it? Yeah. How do you how do you hold on to that income <laughs> and how do you multiply it? So hopefully, with after the all trick. these books, you will have the secrets. <laughs> I don't know. If there's a secret. I don't. I. I mean, just looking at his early. If I could, if I could think like a a twenty a twenty year old. If I could think like he was at twenty, <laughs> I'd be doing good. Oh, so he graduates. Um, let's see. Before he graduated from graduate school, well, I, I mentioned that he went to graduate school because of Benjamin Graham, and he read his book. He, he loved Benjamin Graham. He wanted to learn as much as he could from Benjamin Graham. So he picked the heck out of his brain at his uh, seminar, his weekly seminar. And um, he kind of outshone all the other students there because he was just, he was an information gathering machine apparently from the book. So by the time he graduated um, from graduate school, he had amassed $174,000 in, in 19... Whatever it was, let's see. He was 26, so uh, 1956. He had amassed $174,000, which today is worth 1.6 million. Wow. 1.6 million after graduating from graduate school. That's incredible. Most most people are in debt. Yeah. <laughs> most people have 20 years worth of debt yeah. when they graduate from graduate school. Mm -hmm. He had 1.6 million dollars. The equivalent of. That's just... <laughs> well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. No, I take that back. This uh, He he had 202000 when he graduated from graduate school. Stop. I'm sorry. 202000 uh -huh. two Okay, so he graduates from graduate school. Um, he wants to go work at Graham Newman because they have an, a money management investment firm there in New York. They say, I'm sorry, we only hired Jews. <laughs> Well, is, um, so tell us about Graham Newman a little bit. What 
Oh, so Graham, Graham was the guy t- that he, his follower who was teaching at Columbia, but he also had his own investment firm, Graham Newman. Oh, okay. So it's that York. same professor that he wanted to go work for. Yeah, he's okay. work, working with Newman. And um, it was a strictly Jewish firm. They wouldn't hire anybody else other than Jewish people. And the reason for that is because nobody else was hiring Jewish people. Mm-hmm. So they were like, all right, we're going to start our own little thing. And Benjamin uh, Warren Buffett wanted to work there. And Benjamin Graham was like, sorry. You're a Gentile. <laughs> He's like, okay, I understand. So he went back to um, Omaha and decided to start his own stock brokerage and um, set it up right there in his dad's shop uh, in Omaha and started doing the same thing and quickly realized that this is not a good way to make money because the way to make money is by selling as many stock mm. stocks as you can because you, you make a, a fee off of those, those stocks that you sell. And there just weren't enough people coming in to buy stocks. So he then decided he was going to start his own. um, um, Well, actually, he did really well there. uh, Well enough. And um, that's when he was that's when he had the equivalent of one point six million dollars. And let's see. Wait a minute. I have this right. I no. Then uh, after going after doing his own stock thing in Omaha, he did he did well. Then Newman Graham Newman said, "Hey, all right, we changed our mind. Come work for us." So he went and and did work for them for a little bit, and um, that went on from like uh, that went until 1956, and then um, Benjamin Graham decided to retire at that mm. point. And the interesting thing here is uh, the book says that Graham had been milking the market since the downturn of 1939 and thought that the market in 1956 had become overvalued. And he thought, hmm. well, maybe now's a good time. Quit while I'm ahead. I'm going to retire. I think the market's too too frothy. In 1956. Yeah. So it's just hard to think that, wow, 1956, they thought people could have thought that the market was too high. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, maybe the mar- maybe we were just getting started since we took the dollar off of the gold standard. Maybe things were just getting started then and we didn't really realize how inflated the market could actually get. I don't know. Just, I don't, I'm not, an, I don't know. But it just seems like that could be the possibility. Yeah, sounds And like they it. just didn't realize at the time because they weren't, they didn't know what could actually, how many dollars that the government could actually print and put in the cir- circulation and how that would blow up equities but anyway um, so after working for Graham Newman um, he finally became a billionaire uh, a millionaire um, in at age 32 and um, that was when he left Graham Newman went back home to Nebraska and decided that he was going to form his own partnership. And this is kind of where things really got good for him. Um, He decided that he was going to manage other people's money and that he was going to take a cut off of the profits that he made by investing other people's money. And so he was able to take those profits and reinvest them for himself. Wait, wait, wait. So he took the profits off the top. He didn't keep any. He just reinvested. Yeah. So he formed a partnership. Yeah. He got friends and family to give him money. And he took that money. And, and that's how, that was his first step in multiplying dollars is take other people's money, take that, invest it in the market, manage it, ensure that it grows using the, the intelligence that he already had and the genius that he was able to pull out of Graham mm-hmm. for, for finding stocks. And... Um, grow that money and then the proceeds from the the annual proceeds from that or monthly or whatever probably annual uh take a percentage of that 25 percent, and that money became his Mm. that he in turn invested in his own things so he was he was growing money he he was taking money cash from people Mm -hmm. so he always needed cash to invest and then and taking money from people helped him get that cash that he could then put in the market grow it take proceeds off and and grow it even more that way. Incredible. So this is the, where things really started getting interesting for him. So by 1962, 
when he was at age 32, he'd become a millionaire. And he thought, he, he predicted early on when he was a kid that he's going to be a millionaire by 36, but he's actually, he got, became a millionaire by 32. Damn. Which, of course, in today's dollars is $8,565,800 at age 32. So, um, the thing, one of the things that he really learned from uh, Benjamin Graham was this metaphor that he uses of finding old cigar butts that have one more good puff in them before you throw them away. And the cigar butts are businesses. And so they would find dying businesses that you know they could put one last breath of good performance in before the stock became before the company just went and then um, they would puff it up and then they would sell it real quick so they'd buy it cheap puff it up and then sell it Mm. and these are the cigar butts Mm -hmm. that they were they were looking for and and that was kind of the Graham methodology at the time and that's what he was using to get uh, relatively quick, big returns from companies for his investors at the time. <clears throat> um, he, he was then taking the proceeds from that and buying stock, as I mentioned, and this is the time when he stumbled upon a textile uh, company up in Massachusetts called Berkshire, Berkshire that would merge with Hathaway. It was a Berkshire Hathaway company up in Massachusetts. Oh, so the name, like the Berkshires in Massachusetts, yeah. I never associated the name with Omaha and was very confused about how that all mm. came about. So mm-hmm. now that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, this is really uh, subtle. Uh, I, I've been trying to figure out, even after reading this book, I didn't, I was looking for how did Berkshire Hathaway come about? Yeah. How did, how did the Warren Buffett Berkshire Hathaway come about? And even after reading 700 pages, I was still had the question. I didn't see it in the book. Yeah. So I had to I had to Google it. And then even when I read it on, read it on Wikipedia, I was still, oh, it took me a while to register. And what happened was, so he had this limited partnership, right, that he started. Yeah. Back in, back in Omaha. Yeah. And he's becoming very successful and making his friends and family money. Mm-hmm. And they're getting slowly more and more wealthy. And he's taking the proceeds from from that that partnership, and he's putting them into his own investments. And one of his own investments that he 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 realizes there's a pattern in this Berkshire Hathaway company, and what they're doing. So what happened is they're a textile company, right? And companies down south who produce cotton were shipping the cotton up into Massachusetts because it's so hot down in the south back then that nobody wanted to take that cotton and produce clothes out of it in factories because it was too freaking hot and so they would send it up into massachusetts where it's cool (laughs) so they so so they would they would run up they put it on boats and ship it up to massachusetts and uh, they take that cotton and they produce products from it clothing products and stuff textiles that's what textiles are yeah yeah i had no idea you know what the problem was there what happened that disrupted that? The technology that disrupted that. Apple. That made Berkshire Hathaway and make, made Warren Buffett, Buffett so wealthy. Apple? <laughs> no. Macintosh. Air conditioning. Oh, oh. They yeah. created air conditioning. So now they had factories down in the south that could they could produce the, put the cotton in the field, then put it inside and work on it. And, you know, it wasn't yeah. sweltering hot and people weren't going to pass out doing it. So... Fewer, it became more expensive to ship the cotton up into Massachusetts and have it have it um, uh, turned into fabric. Turned yeah. into fat, yeah. Do stuff with than to keep it in the south. So slowly, but and then of course it became much cheaper to have it done in other countries and then shipped back to the states. Yeah. Um, so what Buffett noticed was that the company was uh, Berkshire Hathaway was slowly selling off assets which would increase, they'd, they'd close the factory, it would increase the stock price, and then that stock price would slowly go down, and then they'd sell another factory, and the stock price would go up, and then it would slowly come down. Mm. He realized that pattern, which was the cigarette butt pat or the, the cigar butt mm. pattern. That's why he bought the company. He's waiting for a big puff. Um, it finally came through, and the guy he was negotiating with, because his name's uh, Sloan or whatever, you can Google it, but the owner of the company, 
um, they came to uh, a gentleman's agreement that he would buy it at, I think it was 11 and a half per share. And they were like, okay, good. And, and so then uh, the guy came back with the, the documented terms for the sale of the company or the sale of the stock. Buffett was going to sell him his stock. The stock that he owned mm-hmm. of, of Berkshire Hathaway, and the guy said, um, "No, I'll, I'll only buy it for eleven and six eighths. And so that really made Buffett upset. So he, <laughs> this is a really good lesson, I think. Don't you know? Don't let your uh, passions get the best of you in a business deal. But apparently, it did. You know, you would think the Oracle of Omaha wouldn't be affected by his internal passions, but that really pissed him off, and he said, "Forget it." I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sell my stock. And in fact, I'm gonna go all in. I'm gonna buy you out. And so he ended up gobbling up all of the Berkshire Hathaway stock, and then um, it ended up being a totally worthless company, <laughs> which is so ironic. So he ends up buying this this company, uh, totally be- became ultimately worthless. Horrible business decision. But now most people see Berkshire Hathaway as this hugely successful. Warren Buffett owned company. He mm-hmm. turned that lemon into lemonade in, in spades, which is, I, I had no idea. I, and I, I was just like really amazed by that whole turn of events and how he turned that around. Well, it seems like he totally pivoted the focus because obviously they don't do textiles anymore. So he totally changed the branding of the company yeah, slowly but, something different. Yeah, slowly but surely, Berkshire Hathaway started investing in insurance companies. Yeah. And, and slowly, you know, got out of textiles yeah. and then eventually textile, he closed the whole thing down and everybody went home or whatever. But at, by that time, Berkshire Hathaway was becoming largely successful by investing in insurance mm-hmm. companies like Geico and, and others. And the genius in investing in insurance companies there was um, the float that they carried. So when you buy insurance, the, you got to send off your checks every month to the insurance company for stuff that what do you get in return nothing and what do they have to you know all they have is overhead to to pay the insurance companies right so they're just sitting on all this cash waiting for some cataclysmic event to happen so they can pay out an insurance term so that that money that's sitting in their coffers is float and so if you own that company you can take that float and you can use it You've got cash. You can do things with that cash. Really? I didn't know that. As long as you're wise with it and you don't go broke with that cash, you can do things with it. You can like buy other companies. You can buy more stock. And so that's that was the genius behind that whole insurance play. Is he had a, a whole another pool of money that he could use to uh, to grow stuff with. But you got to be you know you got to be really smart because you can go <laughs> really bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if something bad happens and then you don't have the cash to pay out the insurance claims. So, um, so that's, that's how Berkshire Hathaway came about. So interesting. Isn't it? Yeah. I, I just, I love that. I, I had no idea that Berkshire Hathaway was a, a defunct textile company. So that kind of blew my mind to learn that. So, uh, yeah, from there, um, it, the business just exploded. He met Charlie Munger. Munger, they become, you know, Munger was a lawyer. I didn't know that. Uh, who, be, who made a significant amount of money in real estate in California. He was also a, a lawyer. They became great friends. Very complimentary um, attitudes and mindsets. And um, Buffett hooked up with Bill Gates. And just uh, um, Kate Graham from the Washington Post started rubbing elbows. Uh, early on in his career, people in Omaha were like talking bad about him, saying, "Don't put your money with with Buffett. He's unproven. He's you know he's fly by night guy. He's not going anywhere." And it took him a long time to become the Buffett, you know. So that's another good good story about him. That as as successful as he is today, it took him a long time for people to you know <laughs> to basically worship him. Yeah, and. Uh, just what a great story! Just so many, so many, a lot of, lot of really trying times too. I mean, it hasn't one of the trying times was uh, his investment in Solomon, and how one guy was doing some bad trades in in Solomon, and at a time when uh, Berkshire Hathaway was a big investor in that company, and one guy um, made some bad trades that. 
threatened to bring not only the company down, but threatened the entire U.S. economy because uh, it threatened to cause panic and run on the banks and stuff like that. One guy. And the only reason it got turned around, or the, the main reason it got turned around is because Buffett put his uh, uh, reputation on the line there and said, okay, I'm now running the show. Things are going to be okay. And because of his reputation um, and his, uh, his ethics and, and morality and honesty and um, openness with the government and, and with everybody, uh, was able to turn that company around and get the share, get the stock price going back up and cause calm again in, in the economy. That's incredible. I mean, that's leadership right there. Yeah, it's just that, that's another great story. Um, so now today he's worth what over eighty-two billion. Eighty-two billion. Can't even wrap my head around that much. Talk about compounding growth, and. Um, Basically, it just boils down to taking cash, buying low, selling high. <laughs> Formulaically, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to it, obviously, but yeah. basically, that's what he did: is in, in, invest in stock, buy buy stocks cheap, and sell them high, or or hold them forever. Mm -hmm. Um. So, uh, just want to talk about some other quick things that I learned from this book. It starts off. Um, with Buffett and his family flying their personal jet into Sun Valley, Idaho. Now, I had never heard of this. I didn't know this was a thing. But there's a guy named Herbert Allen, who's a big-time investor, um, helps media companies. do. He's an investor in Google and a lot of big media companies, very wealthy guy. And he invites big muckety-mucks from big from around the world, mm -hmm. people who've got a lot of money, a lot of clout, a lot of power, to this place in Idaho, to this place in Idaho. And they it's in July, it's an annual event, and they go and they talk about money and they talk about business. And it's like a big mastermind for for rich people. That's cool. Really uber, uber wealthy. And so the opening of the book is them flying to doing their, um, their pilgrimage to some Sun Valley and... Uh, Buffett delivering a speech, and this is in 1999. You know, so the dot com is dot com bubble is in full effect at the time. People are making money hand over fist in tech stocks. Everybody thinks they're so smart because they're making money from tech stocks. And he delivers a speech that says, basically, this is not based on any reality and you guys are crazy in so many words for investing in tech stock. He, Buffett hardly ever invested in tech stocks. He just didn't understand them. He's all about business fundamentals and the business fundamentals kind of went out the window for technology stocks because the valuations were uh, just, you know, companies weren't even making any money, but they were valued. So, you know, hundreds of times worth <laughs> Uh, it was such a such a great time. I love the night, late nineties. It was so fun. But yeah, so he he gave this word of warning to all the muckety mucks there, and they were kind of upset with him. They're like, he's old. He's he's running his course. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And sure enough, <laughs> 2000, 2001 rolled around, and oh, people started bowing to him again. With, the whole market crashed. But so anyway, Sun Valley, Herbert Allen, never heard about these guys, didn't know uh, that was a, a thing every year, so it was interesting to learn about that. Um, in the 1980s, there's this idea that academics started talking about called efficient market hypothesis, or EMH. And I thought that was really interesting. And it has to do with the idea that it's, it's really impossible for people, individuals or people or whatever, to find, to do research and um, investigations like Buffett was accustomed to doing to find value in stocks, to find undervalued stocks and, and to you know, buy low and sell them high. And um, Buffett took issue with that because he was like, hey, what, what am I doing? If, if the EMH is a thing and people aren't able to find uh, people aren't able to actually make money investing in stocks anymore. 
And, and look at all these people. Look at Graham and um, all these other people. <clears throat> so uh, I, th I think he was right that uh, there are exceptions to that rule. But I also think efficient market hypothesis is a thing for many reasons. Um, I, I think as technology has progressed, um, technology is helping to price in all of this, this analysis ahead of time, even, even trying to predict the future. And, and so that uh, equity markets are becoming much, much more efficient. And it is a lot harder to find um, under, undervalued individual stocks now, I, I think. And I think it's progressively become true even since the 80s. And again, even Graham was worried about that in the 50s. And I think that's, it's become more and more the case. Um, and I, I think it's hard to argue against that, especially when you think about um, Berkshire Hathaway, Hathaway and how much cash they're holding because they can't find anything to invest in anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, hmm. uh, and out of that came the idea that normal people like you and me who want to grow our dollars um, are probably not well served trying to research individual stocks and trying to find some value there to invest in and that we're probably better served in and even Buffett says this and just buying a fund that tracks the the average an index fund and invest in that index fund and hold buy and hold and don't worry about the day to day to day month to month year to year fluctuations have a long-term goal put your money in an index fund and let it ride. And according to Buffett, the market has always gone up. And hmm. this is a guy who's been listening to both sides of the equation since he was a little kid. And um, the same the same ideas ever since the, the 1930s, 1940s. Hey, the market's overvalued, it's going to crap, ah, you know, it's always going up. Um, I, I, I think, He's very wise in that regard that um, the market probably always will go up, and probably because of inflation and because uh, companies are becoming more uh, um, productive, hmm. more and more productive. So that drives up, and especially when you come out with you know, technology like artificial intelligence and stuff like that, I think that's going to drive the market even higher. So, yeah, um, so there's going to be ups and downs. Um, I, I do worry about inflation. I, like, again, I, I'm like his dad. I, I think that inflation is still a problem. National debt is definitely a problem. And, but uh, it, ha it hasn't seemed to do anything. That's <laughs> I mean, on the gold standard for all these years. So I don't know. Are, are we due? I don't know. But anyway, um, Two more things I wanted to, to, two more business things that I learned, uh, words. Uh, it's kind of like an MBA reading this book, an MBA <laughs> class. One is the term called arbitrage. And... Is that like a bird? No, it's not like a bird. <laughs> it's a business term. I, and I was thinking arbitration. Yeah. And arbitration is when like you, you agree to uh, some... Uh, uh, hearing inside of a company and you, you, you agree not to take your, your legal claim to a court to be heard in court. You, you have a, uh, a jury of peers and stuff like that. And you, whatever your, your peers and inside of the company agree to, then, then you agree to agree to that and it's done. That's arbitration. Arbitrage is a really interesting thing where, um, you have two things that are, uh, almost equal but they're valued slightly differently. So you can sell one and buy the other at a profit or, or buy one and sell the other at a profit. And one great example is um, provided in the book where uh, Buffett was working at, with Graham and Newman in New York. And uh, this company called Rockwood and Company, a chocolatier came to them and said, hey, uh, we sell chocolate chips in grocery stores. <laughs> And we buy our chocolate chips for five cents a pound. Our cocoa, our cocoa, cocoa beans make chocolate, right? Mm -hmm. Our cocoa beans. We, we buy our cocoa beans for for five cents a pound, but uh, they just the, the cost of cocoa beans just spiked to fifty cents a pound. And oh my gosh, we can't raise the prices of our chocolate in the grocery stores to to uh, cover 
that cost, much less make a profit off of that. So can you help us with that? So uh, Graham put Buffett on the, on the case and um, Buffett helped um, them turn a, a tidy profit from this. He also helped himself turn a tidy profit from this. And this is what arbitrage basically is in a business sense. Um, so there's this guy, this investor named Jay Pritzker, who uh, spotted a 1954. Uh, so part of the problem with Rockwood was that, you know, they, they had all these beans that were now worth 10 times more than what they bought them at. So conceivably, they could just sell them and make a profit just by selling the beans to somebody else at that price. However, Taxes at the time would have taken too much out of the profit and they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have realized enough. So um, this guy Pritzker spotted a 1954 tax code that said that if a company is liquidating inventory and reducing its business scope, then it doesn't have to pay those taxes. And Pritzker is an investor. So he, he notices this tax code that Rockwood doesn't. He's independent. He doesn't work for uh, Graham Newman or Buffett or uh, Rockwood. He's just an independent guy. So he's like, oh, I'm going to start buying stock in, in this company. And um, in exchange for that stock, uh, he's going to, um, let's see, he would sell, uh, how did this work? He, he, he got ownership of the company by buying enough of the stock, right? So then he, he has, now has control of the company. And then he decides to get rid of their cocoa butter business and offers to exchange shares of the stock to shareholders for beans. So basically the trade was you give me $34 worth of shares and I'll give you $36 of beans. Seems like a good deal. Right, because then you can sell those beans for two two dollars profit per share. Makes sense. Right, so um, so this is the arbitrage angle. You're you're two things that are relatively the same, but you can sell one for more, make make a profit on it. But then Buffett comes along and says, uh, and, and so Graham um, uh, not notices what Pritzker's doing, and they're like, oh, okay, well. We'll sell our shares to you. We'll take the beans and then we'll sell the beans and make money off of the beans. So they're making money both ways. Right? Hey, that looks good. Let's do that. But then Buffett says, wait a minute. I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm seeing that even if, you, even if they exchange, not, everybody's not going to exchange their shares, all the shares outstanding. And the, and the shares that remain outstanding are going to be less than the amount of beans that the company is still going to hold. So those shares are going to go up. So people are going to, some people are going to exchange their shares, but the, the amount of shares outstanding are not going to exceed the amount of beans they have. Mm -hmm. And so the shares that are remain outstanding are going to go, go up. So Buffett is like, all right, I'm going to buy these share. I'm going to buy 222 shares and then I'm going to hold them. And that also made me realize the concept of inversion which was a really another interesting uh, concept. And the concept is to think about things, a system, think about a system from the other person's perspective mm -hmm. and what's actually going on. Um, if you have the ability to do that, then you can see both sides of the equation and use that to your advantage. And so he was able to do that and made a huge, huge profit by just buying the stock and holding it. And yeah, so he, he bought, he bought shares at $15 and they shot up to $15, uh, 85. Wow. Yeah. Huh. From that, from that transaction. So he made a ton of money and that's why he walked away. Uh, one of the reasons he walked away from Graham Newman with, um, at the time with over $174,000 was because of that, that, that big transaction that he made there. Yeah, so that's arbitrage. Yeah, okay. and and I thought that was a really interesting business case right there. Yeah, like I didn't even know that kind of stuff went on. Like here, here's some shares of stock, and this gives you uh, ownership and a bunch of beans sitting in a warehouse. <laughs>
I didn't even know that hat went on. So anyway, that's cool. Uh, yeah, this is a really exciting book. I, I love the, the stuff that I learned in here. One, one more term that I learned real quick. The term called current assets. Never heard that before. What's your current assets? What's the current assets of a business? Current assets measure liquidity. How fast a company can raise cash. It includes cash uh, that's easily, easily saleable investments, investments, inventory, and money due from others. It excludes real estate, equipment, debt, pensions, which cannot be readily liquidated or owed to others. So some business terms there that I picked up. Still trying to get those to sink in my brain, but um, wrote those down and found them interesting. So that's the book, Snowball by Alice Schrader. It is fascinating. It's a, a really great um, uh, voyeuristic <laughs> journey into the life of Warren Buffett and his family and uh, a little little glimpse into Omaha, Nebraska and learned about Rose Blumpkin and her where, her furniture warehouse that you have seen when you were in Omaha. I even bought a table there. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, she was a fascinating lady too, an immigrant from Belarus, I think. Belarus, yeah. Former Soviet uh, bloc country. And how she came to America and the, the tough, just the tough, really, I mean, I'm, she somehow... She bought a, t- a, she was a little, she was a teenager and somehow she bought a t- train ticket to, to get out of there. It took her through China, that took her to Japan, that took her to, on a boat to Seattle. And uh, eventually she made her way to Omaha. <laughs> I can't imagine what these guys went through That's back incredible. in the day. And then from there, just wildly successful going toe to toe with Warren Buffett in the day. It's awesome. <laughs> Rose Rose Pumpkin, and then she ends up working until the day she dies at like 104 or something like that. So anyway, it's a great book. I recommend you read it. Um, I think I've been inspired enough to try to read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham next. I don't know why. I'm not going to invest in individual stocks, but I'm just intrigued by the, the business aspect of it. And just, I don't know. I don't know why I'm interested in it, but... See if I can learn something about stocks. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Sounds interesting. And it's cool that it was his mentor, so it's kind of following that trend. Yeah. 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 It's kind of just, what was he thinking at the yeah. time? That What did he know at age 15 that yeah. I'm still trying to figure out or still haven't learned? And that's why I want to read these books because, oh my God, like, he, I mean, he was a prodigy, really. I mean, 14, he was already way ahead of almost where I am now. Like, just how? So I want to read more about people like that and how, how they're doing it. See if I can figure something out. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll talk to you next week. Over and out. Bye.